I love that. Go be active, go be active. Either way, you got it. <clears throat> Good morning. What a grand weekend. It's a grand weekend for, especially for 75 people who are being baptized at 1 p.m. in Horsetooth Lake Reservoir up there. How about that? <clears throat> and you're invited to cheer them on, cheer them through, celebrate with them. And I think they give you a hot dog afterwards, too. So you could go up there, just cruise up there at 1 o'clock. If you're here for the crew conference over at CSU, thank you for all you do. Thank you for your uh, leadership in the kingdom, and welcome to Timberline Church. We're starting a new series called Like a Child. You got that already. It's a five-part series. Today it's Trust Like a Child. Next week it'll be Receive Like a Child, uh, Imagine Like a Child, Discover Like a Child, and Play Like a Child. How many times have we said in our adult years, oh, if I could just be a kid again. I didn't have to drive myself to work. I could fit in small spaces, oh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know how that kid thing works, you know, you, there's, there's that point of conception and then the cells start to divide and then that baby starts to grow in the womb and then about, you know, and the organs form and systems and infrastructures and then about nine months in, one day the little guy or little gal in there says, I feel just a tad bit of pressure here. And there, somebody, well, that, that doesn't feel so good. This may not be the best thing. We may be going on a journey. And sure enough, you go on a journey and down that birth canal, you're born. And it's a totally different universe. I mean, there are bright lights. There are giants talking funny languages. You say, don't hit me, I'll cry. You know, you got all that going, right? <laughs> Everything is new. When you're a child, you can dream. I'm, I'm thinking this weekend, it had to be back a bunch of years ago that Three little boys were dreaming that someday they'd like to fly with no idea that on a particular day 50 years ago this weekend, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins would fly to the moon. No idea. I would bet you dollars to donuts if I was a betting guy that that started when they were little boys as kids. Above all, when we're small, we're cute. This is a picture of our great-granddaughter, Emma. Cool, huh? Her head looks a lot like her grandpa, her great grandpa's there. So she's got this wonderful side to her, but she also has has another uh, mojo sort of going there. She, yes, this is the thing. Great thing about kids is they don't have any social inhibitors. You know, they just say stuff. And parents, you say now, when we're going to go visit, we're going to have dinner, whatever you do, don't. It's a very bad thing to say to a kid because that's exactly where you'll go. How many know that's true? You know, that's just, when our kids were small, Erica, our eldest daughter, who is the grandmother of Emma now, she was, she had learned to read when she was four. We're sitting at the table one evening and she said, Daddy, would you please pass me the C-H-I-P-S? Shove the chips over there. How about the J-E-L-L-O? Her younger sister, 18 months younger, Jenny, said, Daddy, could you pass, pass me the S-U-I-I? I said, well, yeah, honey, what, what is that? She said, well, I don't know. I can't read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Emma's, Emma's mother, who's 28, when she was three, she was with us in the car. We were driving through San Francisco. We lived in California. She was in the back in a car seat, and Ruth and I got into it a little bit. 
I know it's hard for you to believe, but sometimes married couples sort of get into it a little bit. And so we decided to stop talking. So we just stopped and it was tense. You could feel the, but we stopped talking. And from the back seat, a little voice said, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Jesus knew about childhood. His first road trip was in his mother's womb, right? He's born in a barn. When he's two years old, he's a refugee in Egypt. When he's 12 years old, he's confounding the, the priests and the scholars in the temple in Jerusalem. He knew about the kid thing. The context for this series, Like a Child, the larger context is the kingdom of God, God's rule on this planet. So when we think about child, juxtapose it to the idea of God's rule on earth. He uses it as a picture, and we'll come to that in a few moments. Jesus describes the kingdom, the rule of God, in images. If, you have, if you're taking notes, this is on the back of your bulletin. Jesus describes the kingdom, the rule of God, in images. So he paints pictures by telling stories, for example, of lost sheep and wayward sons. He points out objects like fields at harvest or a fisherman's catch. He references the commonplace. Uh, Israel was under the thumb of Rome, so they knew about dictators, they knew about despotic kings, they knew about puppet kings. And those first century listeners to Jesus understood the idea of king. We in America, we don't sort of get the king part very much because the whole point of the United States is we didn't want a king. So we have these three branches of government and people say nothing gets done in Washington. It's just sloppy and messy and it takes forever. And, you know, it would go faster if you had a king. That's true. But then he'd take your stuff and take your kids and take, you know, that's, that's the downside of having a king if you read the stories, right? But these people knew about kings. And so when Jesus talked about kingdom, they had a reference point. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a cluster of interactions in the last few weeks of Jesus' life. If I can draw my air map here, okay? This is my, this is my air map. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, this is Israel, Palestine, it's Palestine, Syria, and Jesus' day. And up here you have the Sea of Galilee, and down here you have the Dead Sea, and this is the Jordan River. And over here you have Jerusalem. And in these incidents, in these uh, scriptures we're going to read in a few moments. Jesus is coming down the Jordan River Valley. It's springtime. He's on his way to the cross. He's about two weeks away from the cross, about eight weeks before he leaves the planet completely. And these incidents happen around Jericho. He's approaching Jericho, which is 15 miles north of the Dead Sea. It is the lowest city on earth, 800 feet below sea level. It is the oldest inhabited city on earth. And you can almost hear it from village to village down the Jordan River Valley. The Holy One from Nazareth is coming. Here he comes. This is a person who has authority, speaks with authority. He heals people. He does miracles. He even raises the dead. The things that Jesus does are snapshots of the kingdom. His words and deeds are glimpses of the kingdom. Point two in your bulletin. His words and deeds are glimpses of the kingdom. I want to say it again. His words and his deeds are glimpses of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom is like. So in Matthew 18 and Mark 10 and Luke 19, you have several interactions 
One of them is from a mother of two of the disciples, James and John. She comes and she wants special seating arrangements in the kingdom. She's talking to Jesus. You can almost hear it. Good Jewish mom. My boys are good boys. If one could sit here, the other sit here, it'd be good. And Jesus is saying, you know, the kingdom's not like that. It's not stratified like these other kingdoms. It's that if you trust me, you get in. We're all there together. That's how that works. Then there was a rich young ruler who came to him who wanted eternal life. And then there's a blind man, Bartimaeus, who wanted to see. And then there's a little short guy named Zacchaeus, who's the ripoff artist of town, a tax collector. Everybody hated him. And he just wants to see better. He wants to get a better look. And he climbs a tree and goes out on a limb. You ever been there? And Jesus interacts with these people. And so he says to the one rich guy who wants eternal life, because he, he's obeyed the law, that's what he says. He says, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He doesn't say that to every rich guy. It's the only rich guy he says that to. But he knew the guy's heart. And it said the man went away disappointed. And then Zacchaeus, who's a rich guy by bad means, he says, Zacchaeus, come down, and I'd like to come to your house for the day. Well, it's got to freak all the people out because he's the terrible guy in town. Why would Jesus go to his house as opposed to those of us who have done things right? And the things he does is he heals blind Bartimaeus physically, and he heals Zacchaeus spiritually and changes everything. You see, the difference between God's kingdom and earthly kingdoms is dramatic. It's dramatic. The difference between God's kingdom and earthly kingdoms <clears throat> is dramatic. For example, the poor are valued in God's kingdom. Outcasts are recruited. That's the pool for recruitment. People out of the way out there, right? Rip-off-itis, rip-off guys get affirmed. Worn traditions are upended. Old practices are challenged. I like this one best, I think. Categories are obliterated. Categories are obliterated. It's so easy to operate by category, right? It just makes life simple. Well, you know how those people are. Don't when Ruth and I went to D.C. in 1993, one of the things I had to learn early, and I, I'm still learning it, is you can have conversations across the board with all kinds of people. Because unless you just want to work with one kind of person in one kind of setting, if you want to reach out as Jesus reaches out to the whole world, you have to do this. You have to suspend judgment at the front end. You have to suspend judgment at the front end. You cannot operate by category and have the good news get out there. Because Jesus looks at us and he doesn't say, oh, I know Foth, he's just like Harry over there. He's got all the same junk going on. It's true that all have fallen short of the mark. It's true that all have sinned, all of that. True. But when he looks at me, he sees the image of his father deep in me. Even if I've run away, even if I've crudded it up, even if I've got garbage all over me, he sees through that. And when I learn to see like he sees, that's his kingdom at work in me. And that's where little children come into play. You can see them coming down the Jordan River Valley. Kids everywhere, you know, it's going from village to village. Here comes the Holy One. And, of course, there are two groups of people that are discounted in that crowd. The two groups of people are women, who in that culture at that time were chattel property, and kids. Kids are discounted, right? And so in these accounts, those two groups come into play. It says that people brought little kids to Jesus. 
I would submit to you that that's the women who brought them. That's fair enough to assume. Mark 10, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read three short passages from three different Gospels. This is how it reads. Mark 10, 13 to 16. People were bringing little children. Paideia is the Greek word. It, it's the word from which we get pediatrics, okay? Paideia to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. Why? Well, they were culturally accommodating their day, you know, women and kids. They don't. And besides, we're getting heavy teaching here from, from this guy. This, I mean, we're close, and they, we're really getting the good stuff in here, and kids are getting in the way. And Jesus, it says, is indignant. If you want to tick God off, try to keep little kids away from him, apparently. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These are the shareholders. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Luke, the doctor, and perhaps he's a bit more precise here, says it this way. People were also bringing babies, and the word is brephos in Greek, and that means babes in arms. It also means babies in the womb. They were bringing babies to Jesus so he could place his hands on them. Now, you need to understand that, that when you have somebody of power or somebody of spiritual depth or somebody in authority, especially in those cultures, to be touched by a holy man, to be touched by someone that you respect, much like you see pictures of people bringing babies to the Pope, and he, you know, he doesn't. That whole idea is endemic in this culture. It's inherent in the culture. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then Matthew. He's back to Paideia here. Then people brought little children, Paideia, to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You say, why did you, why did you have to read all three of those? Well, when you get all the Gospels, and John, in his Gospel, he even goes a little further when he's talking to Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Jews, and he says, except you be born all over again. He goes way back. You don't get in. There's this idea that if, if these writers are saying the same thing, those particular incidents, we need to pay not necessarily more attention, but we at least need to pay attention to those. Think about it. For an adult to become like a little child is mind-boggling. For an adult to become like a little child again is mind-boggling. Especially in this culture. For an adult to become like a little child is mind-boggling. Especially in the Eastern culture. In Eastern culture, age is valued. Wisdom is valued. Experience and experiences are valued. So to enter God's kingdom by reverting to childhood is unthinkable. You can't grasp it. So what quality is Jesus looking for when he says, like a little child? What's he looking for? Well, we have these four kids, and I've told some of you these stories before, but I just I love these little incidents when uh, Erica, uh, who's the grandmother of Emma that you saw on the screen, when she was 10, we're driving through Urbana, Illinois, where we used to live when we were doing a church plant near the University of Illinois. I said, Erica, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she turned to me, turned to me and grinned and said, I don't know, Dad. What do you want to be? 
Well, I'm thinking, smart mouth kid, which side of the family did that come from? You know, that was, but maybe that directness that a child has is what Jesus is talking about. Or, or maybe it's the, it's the impetuousness, because, you know, we just do stuff when we're kids. We're not thinking, of, we just do it. I walked into our house. I had been playing tennis. We had a house in Urbana that was seven, it, it was a split entry, seven steps down, seven steps up. And I turned to put my tennis racket down. It was in my tennis playing phase. You know, guys, you've got the weightlifting phase and the tennis and the run. This is my tennis phase. And I put it down, and I hear this little voice of three-year-old Jenny who's standing at the top of the stairs as she says, catch me, Daddy. And I whirl, and she is in the air. She hits me in the chest, and I grab her. And I said, Jenny, don't do that. Daddy could drop you. And she whispered in my ear and said, oh, no, you're my daddy. And I'm going, well... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Chris. When he's four, he walks into the front room and says, Dad, why don't you help me with the numbers? And maybe it's because maybe it's we're always learners as kids. When preschoolers are absorbing information through their pores, it's unbelievable. Little people, just they're learning stuff all the time. And so he's a four-year-old. He said, help me with the numbers. I said, what do you want to do? He said, add to 10. I said, okay, what's two plus three? And he looked at his hands because he had 10 digits. He said, I said, what's well, five plus two? He looks at his hands. I said, seven. I said, what's well, seven plus two? He looks at his hands. I said, nine. I said, what's well, ten plus two? Look at his hands. I said, I can't tell you that. I said, how come? He said, because I'd have to have 12 fingers to tell you that. <laughs> I'm going, my son, Neil Armstrong, the rocket guy, you know. He didn't know that he knew. Kids are always learning, right? And then there's Susanna, who's now the mother of three teenage boys, which we feel she deserves. And uh, she's, she's a wonderful, but she, she was just a free spirit. And I walked in one day, and she's lying on the linoleum by the washing machine. I said, Sue, what are you doing? She said, nothing. Dead, dead giveaway. I said, Susanna, stand up. She stood up, and from under the top of her shirt right here came the head of a little white kitten right here. I said, Susanna? You know the rule. When I was a little kid in India, I was scratched by a Siamese cat. So I'd, I'm not a cat guy. I'm, I'm more of a dog guy. It's not, not, not that I hate cats. It's just that I want some distance. You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> Besides, dogs know apparently that you're their masters. And cats think you're staff. So I just, <laughs> I read that someplace. I love that line. And so she's got this cat, but... They had come out of Safeway, and mom was complicit. Somebody's giving away little kittens as a litter. She brings one home. And I said, Susanna, but you know the rules. Like, not Bible or anything. It's just, you know. And she looked at me, and she has big brown eyes. She opened her eyes wide and said, he was a stranger, and I took him in. <laughs> I hate it when they quote scripture to you like that. But maybe, maybe it's the winsomeness that Jesus, is it direct or is it the impetuousness or is it always learning or the winsomeness? I would submit to you that the core experience of a baby or a toddler is this. It's trust. Complete, reflexive, unabashed trust. That's what Jesus is looking for when he says you don't get into the kingdom unless you're like the kid, unless you're like that. My friend Barb Melby, who's been in early childhood ed for almost three decades, I called her, I said, talk to me about kids and trust. And she said this, children are eager to learn. They do that by experience, little people especially. 
They do it by experience. Hands-on is their way. You give them some idea. That's not the way. It's they're, they're literal, you know. When you, when you talk to a four-year-old about Jesus is the bread of life, he's looking for a sandwich, right? I mean, that's the... And once they, but once they trust, they can withhold trust, but once you do trust, they jump in with enthusiasm. Trust is the key word. The trust of a child drives everything else. They never tire of what they love to do. Children never tire of what they love to do. If I'm trusting Jesus like a child, I never tire of being in his presence. I never tire of standing on tiptoe to see what it is he wants to do next, right? G.K. Chesterton was an, a writer in England back in the day. Some of his writings influenced C.S. Lewis in coming to faith, I'm told. He writes this about childlike. I love this. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. You know this is true. You're reading the book and you skip two words. They say, no, no, go back. You missed those two they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. So, Ultimate trust is absolute dependence. Ultimate trust is absolute dependence. Think about it. A baby can't do anything for themselves. Can't feed themselves, can't walk, can't talk, can't clean, none of that. You do all of that, it's absolute dependence. It isn't their choice, it's just that that's where they are. And you have to choose as you get a little older. The tension for me is all of my years I've been told, especially in my generation, oh Dick, grow up. So I do something dumb, some stupid thing when I'm eight or nine years old and some adult says, oh, Dick, grow up. So I've worked like crazy to grow up over the last seven decades and now I'm grown up and I'm, I'm you know, a man and a father and I own my own home almost and, and all of that stuff, right? And Jesus comes along to the old dude and says, oh, Dick, need you to be a kid, need you to be a little and I go, really? That, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's not even counterintuitive. That sounds nuts to me. But he's not the God who's nuts. He's the God who knows. He's the God who understands how we work. And I've come to this conclusion that if I can trust God like a little child, be absolutely dependent on him every day and every week, in all these circumstances. And I, I, you know, I don't do this 100%, but I know it's true that if I, can, if I will do that, then I can be an adult with you. If I can trust him absolutely in those situations, you can trust my word. You can know that I'll treat you honorably. You can know that I'll tell you the truth. I think that's the tension. It's a good tension, like the tension on a, 
like the tension on a guitar string so when you strum it, it's in harmony. If you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, then you, then you can love your neighbor as yourself in an adult way. When I'm, when I'm a child with God, I can be an adult with you. There's one moment in my life where this like a child came into bold relief. Some of you have heard this story before, and I, I love telling the story because it captures it for me. In 1993, when we went to D.C., a few years later, our daughter Jenny, the one who said, catch me, Daddy, that same one who would come to me and say, up, Daddy, and I'd pick her up. And now she, she became an adult and started following Jesus, and she still says, up, Daddy, to him. That's the transfer you want to see, okay? She came after graduate school to pay off school bills, and she got a job on Capitol Hill with a congressman friend of mine. She was hired by his chief of staff, chief of staff run Capitol Hill. His name was Charlie White, and Charlie White uh, was a retired Navy submarine captain. But for the last 16 years, he had been chief of staff to this congressman who was a tremendous Jesus follower, had a great heart for religious freedoms, humanitarian needs, would travel the world to hellish places like Somalia and Sudan when bombs were falling and bullets were flying. He'd take Charlie, and Charlie would video some stuff and try to get our government to respond in certain humanitarian crises. And uh, Charlie really loved the congressman, loved his courage, loved his heart. But the Jesus part, because the congressman was a Jesus follower, the Jesus part wasn't where Charlie was. He didn't get the Jesus part. <laughs> One day they were in Sierra Leone. Some of you know about blood diamonds where the rebels would come into the village and intimidate the villagers to get them to be co-opted and stuff. They'd come in and they'd put a box in the middle of the village and write words on pieces of paper and then they'd have all the villagers come and take a piece of paper out of that box and whatever body part was on that piece of paper, that's what they chopped off with a machete. So you had refugee camps with a bunch of young moms with no hands and just this horrific demonic kind of thing. And Charlie was there and he felt a sharp pain in his hip. He came back to DC, he went to Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore and they said, Charlie, you've got a virulent form of cancer. We don't know if we can stop it, but the, at least we can um, replace your hip. So Charlie's waiting for a new hip at his home in Vienna, Virginia, outside of D.C. And Jenny, our daughter, has resigned from the office after several years because she's going to go with a group called World Vision to West Africa, Mauritania on the hump of Africa. On the Sunday afternoon before she's supposed to leave on the Monday, she said, I want to go see Charlie. So we drive out in a snowstorm pull up in his driveway, go into his house, and we're just going to stay 15, 20 minutes so Jenny can thank him and say goodbye. And we end up staying an hour and a half because Charlie wants to talk about God. So at the end, we have a little prayer and leave, and I said, Charlie, can I see you later? And he said, yeah. So we put Jenny on a Air France Flight 28 the next night to Paris and on to Nouakchott, Mauritania. And on Friday, I go back to see Charlie, and when I walked, when I walked into the house, the first thing he said to me was, Dick, I don't think I can do this without God. I said, well, I'm with you. He said, what do I need to do? I said, well, why don't you like, give your whole life to him? He said, okay. I just have one question. I said, what's that? He said, I haven't paid any attention to God in 64 years. If I come to him now when I could be, as he put it, checking out, isn't he going to be mad? I said, Charlie, you have adult kids, right? I said, if, if one of those children were estranged from you, if he or she had gone off and just spoiled the family name, blown all the cash and all of that, and he or she called you up and said, 
Dad, I've been an idiot. I just want to come home. I just want to spend time. I want to sit in front of the TV and eat pizzas and watch old movies with you and just catch up. How would you feel about that, Charlie? He said, I'd love that. I said, well, if you as an imperfect heavenly father or earthly father feel that way, how much more would a perfect, all-loving heavenly father feel that way? He said, okay, what do I do? I said, let's pray. He said, how do you do that? Because if you never prayed, like you don't know, like the protocols. I said, it was just like talking to me, except you can't see him. I sensed his hesitancy. I said, Charlie, would you like me to help? He said, yeah. I said, I'm going to say some phrases out loud, and I want you to just copy, follow me. He said, okay. I said, dear God, this is Charlie. He said, dear God, this is Charlie. And I'm just getting ready to say the next phrase, and Charlie takes off. He said, God, I've screwed pretty much everything up here, and I just and he just dumped it out on the table. Like for two minutes, he just poured his guts out on the table, and it threw me off because I had a good prayer all worked out. And uh, <laughs> like, don't you hate it when people just take off and tell the truth, you know? And he, then he stops after like a minute and a half or two minutes, and he didn't even say amen, and we all know it doesn't work if you don't say amen. <laughs> and then he just slid back in his chair, and he looked at me and said, okay, now what? And all of a sudden, he's the Navy sub-captain ready for the mission. I said, your wife has prayed for you all these years, Charlie. She's a flight attendant on United to Europe once a week. I said, why don't you tell her what she... He said, Mary, come in here. Mary came in. He said, Mary, I want you to know I've just given my whole life to God through Jesus Christ. I have embraced him fully and willingly under no stress or duress from Dick. <laughs> Mary loved that. We had a little prayer and I left. I said, Charlie, come back and see you later. So every few days we'd go back. And I had a young aide with me at that time. His name was Joel, big strapping six foot four guy. And he would come and take Charlie to chemo and to radiation because it became clear that for Charlie, this was no longer a marathon. It was a sprint to the finish line. Walked in one day and he said, Dick, you know that thing you said about when you start following Jesus, I'll see people in a different way? I said, yeah. He said, I think it's starting to happen. I said, really? He said, yeah, I woke up this morning and I looked at Mary. And you know, she's a beautiful woman. I said, she is. He said, but when I looked at her today, it was like I was looking at the Mona Lisa for the very first time. I said, did you happen to mention that to Mary? He said, no. I said, Mary, come in here. She loved that Mona Lisa thing. Then came the day I walked in and Charlie said, you know, I don't think I have enough faith, Dick. I said, how much do you need? He said, I don't know how much I need. I said, well, what does Jesus say? He said, I don't know what Jesus says. I said, Jesus says you need faith the size of a mustard seed. And Middle East mustard is like fine pepper, just a teensy. That's all the trust you need, just that, that much. I said, Charlie, you got your new hip. You're sitting there in the chair, leg up on the ottoman. I said, can you trust or depend on that chair? Can you put any more weight on that chair than you're doing right now? He said, no. I said, that's how you trust Jesus. He said, oh, okay. Shortest conversation I ever had on faith. I walked out, I said, God, what's going on here? I felt like the Lord said, Foth, Charlie's brilliant in all these other areas, but when it comes to his spirit, to his new journey with me, he is a child, he's a baby, and he's going to believe what you tell him, so you better get it right. <laughs> About that time, we got a call from our friend Vern Clark, who was what they call Sinklamp, Commander-in-Chief of the Atlantic Fleet in the Navy. All naval forces from the Mississippi River to the border, to the to the shores of Africa from the North Pole to the South Pole. And the president was gonna name him Chief of Naval Operations. That's running the whole Navy. 800,000 personnel, $120 billion budget a year. And he said, come to my change of command. 
down in Norfolk Harbor on the deck of the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. So 600 of us went down there. And they have this thing in the Navy where when they introduce dignitaries, they don't say their names. They say the titles of the entity that they have. So the loudspeaker comes on and says, attention all hands, Atlantic Second Fleet arriving. And the Admiral of the Second Fleet came on, the two lines of sailors snapped to attention and the band plays, people cheer. Then they said, Atlantic Fleet arriving, and our friend Vern Clark snapped to attention, band plays. Then they said, United States Navy arriving, and Richard Danzig, who was the civilian secretary of the Navy, came on board. I understand that when the President of the United States goes on board any naval vessel anywhere in the world, that they say, attention all hands, United States of America arriving. I had a flash sitting on the deck that on that day 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, when he came as a baby, it was attention all hands, kingdom of God arriving. I called the congressman early in the summer. I said, I don't think Charlie has much time left. Let's go see him. So on a Saturday morning, we went to his house, and by this time, Charlie's in hospice, and he's skeletal. We walked into his room, and he grins at us, and his spirit is just vibrating. His body is wasting away, but his spirit is more alive than it's ever been. And he said, Dick, you know that thing where it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? I said, yeah. He said, um, what is, like, like, how does that work? And I said, Charlie, I, I don't know how that works. I haven't, like, I haven't done that part yet. <laughs> I said, but I think it means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, you come to me for counseling, it's deep, you know, I just go... <laughs> Congressman said, well, where's that part that Jesus is going to go and add on a room to the Father's house? I said, that's John 14. He said, find that text, read it, tell us what it means. I said, yes, sir. So he got that text. I said, it's, it's like an old Middle Eastern house where the young man goes to find a bride and comes back and they add a room onto the family home. And that's an image, a picture of heaven. I said, Charlie, I think Jesus is going to come and take you to the, to the added on room that he's prepared for you. I think he's going to do it in a couple of days. Charlie said, I think so too. I said, you're going to turn around a couple times and the congressman and I are going to show up, hopefully. He said, that'd be great. I said, let's have a prayer, Charlie. Mary came in. We joined hands. I said, congressman, would you pray? These are brothers. They've traveled the world to the hell holes of the world for 16 years. He starts to pray. He gets about three sentences out and he breaks. He can't go on. I finish the prayer. We hug Charlie very gently. And as we walk out, I hear him say, love you guys. A few days later, we're standing by his grave. Arlington National Cemetery, horses, horse-drawn caisson with full honors, flag-covered casket. They fold the flag. The officer kneels in front of Mary and says, with the thanks of a grateful nation. And the bugler starts playing, taps down at the tree line. And I had another one of those flashes that if there are loudspeakers in heaven, I think this is what it sounded like on the day when Charlie arrived. Attention all hands, Charles Evans Hughes White, United States Naval Captain, retired, child of God, arriving. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this moment together. With no one looking around, I just ask this question real quickly. There may be some of us who's, who say, you know, I've been a believer forever. And I used to have that vibrant, childlike faith, but somehow it's gotten chipped off on the edges. There's some, it's just not as vibrant and as trusting as it used to be. And I, I just want that refreshed in my spirit 
and I'd like it to start today, and I'd like you to include me in your closing prayer. Just slip your hand up and say, just include me in the prayer. Yes, 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 many of us. Yep, I get it. I've been there. Thank you. There may be some of us here who say, you know what, Foth? I'm Charlie. I don't have any real background. I've never really talked to or about or trusted God. But I'd just like you to include me in your prayer. I'd, I'd like to take whatever step necessary to start that journey. And you just slip your hand up boldly and say, I'm a Charlie. And I just, I just want you to include me in the prayer. Just lift it real high wherever you are. Yes, yes, I see you. Yes, numbers of us. Yep, 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 yes, yes. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your grace abundant that washes over us. As we step into the stream of your grace and your kindness, help it to wash away the impediments to us trusting you as a child, whether it's on the journey or for starters. Thank you that you are the God who goes out of your way to find us and tag us and say, you're it. I believe you mean it. We give you praise this day in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.